It says I'm recording, so I'm hoping I am. Uh, that said, uh, I will be recording each of these sessions, and uh, I'm not going to make any promises I can't keep, but Lord willing, they will be uh, online on our website tomorrow afternoon. If it turns out to be Thursday afternoon, then you must forgive me and love me anyway, because Jesus said so. So there. Um, but I will try very hard to not make it next Thursday for this one. Um, and then we'll have each of the three posted that way. So if you need to miss one for some reason, you can at least catch up with that if you wish. I have a question on the board. What question or questions do you have uh, that you want covered during this class, preferably relating to understanding the Bible? Okay. Don't ask me computer questions. Um, give it a minute to think. Does anybody have any? I have an observation. Okay. Before I became a Christian, of course, we read the Bible and we go to church and we send to school and we click. You know, the stories are nice, just like in, I guess, and you know, when you go to school, you know, you listen to your teacher, and then you go to Sunday school, you listen to teacher again, and not, not until I came to college that somebody shared the good news to me, and then I understood. Um, you're teaching this class, and, um, how can I um, form my question? Um, well, I mean, I know it's the Holy Spirit that helps us understand. And, um, you know, as you read His Word. How can, um, even when I read and I also help in coordinating these Bible study groups, I mean, my the Bible study, um, Sometimes it's so hard also, you know, this, despite the fact that I use all this importance, the uh, this and that, but um, I think in short, I have to put my time. <laughs> I'm just putting together my thoughts, you know. Okay. And um, just like what you said, um, <coughs> you give homeworks and if we do it, then we, get the benefit of it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that is exactly the point that I addressed this in a sermon a, a couple of weeks ago. Why exactly does God say we have to put effort into this? Would it not have been better for him to simply say, here, and all of a sudden everybody gets it? <laughs> right? I can make a case for that. I mean, I kind of like that idea a little bit. Um, and in fact, there will be a day. Uh, in the resurrection, my role will not exist. Okay? I'm not going to care. But Scripture says no one's going to teach you about God because he will write his law in our hearts. I suspect he did that once before. I suspect that Adam and Eve, and yes, by the way, I actually believe they were historical people, um, not on a faith basis, because I think you can be a Christian and think that's allegory, but I don't see any evidence to not believe that. But 
I believe they were there and they made a choice to sin, which took them down a road and us, and we can't blame them because let's be real, we've all also done that, that makes understanding God very difficult, um, which is why he has to recreate us and then write his law in our hearts. Because right now, we don't know these things. We have to be taught or we have to learn, we have to put in, uh, there's a Greek word, comes into English, I suppose we would put, that's not zoo, that's zoo, spudazo. When Peter says, be diligent, as he has several times, and I've emphasized that in our study in Second Peter on Sunday mornings, this is the word. And it means put a lot of energy into this. Um, one of the older translations translates it in some contexts, study. Now, I'm not sure study really covers the energy that we're talking about. And I suppose it depends on you and what study means to you. When I first read that, I was in high school, and I had studied. I was almost flunking out, but no, nevertheless, I had studied some. And when I read that, that just didn't make much of a mark on me, frankly. When I got into college, a Bible college, and I was greatly blessed to be able to actually study and get credit for studying the Bible. I was like, wow, this is a racket. That's okay, I'm good with that racket. Um, I realized that there was a giant difference between the people who were still treating their studies the way I had in high school and the people who seemed to actually understand the word. And I had, and I wasn't one of those yet, but there was a lot of models, both professors and some of the upperclassmen, and I was just amazed at their grasp of the word and their comfort level in studying what they didn't understand. And then I start talking to them, and I find out how much energy they're putting in. A lot of this is, it's you reap what you sow, to be honest with you. Now again, why did God do that? Why do we have to do that? And the only thing I can tell you is, he knows better than we do. Now I do have a suspicion. When things get really hard for you, what do you tend to do as a Christian? Things just get really hard. Right. Talk to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, that's just bizarre. Because you would think that's the starting point, right? But for many of us, it's not. It was a, that's the story of the Old Testament. God's relationship with the Hebrew nation was he would set things up and make things extraordinarily easy, fantastic for them. And what did they do? They ignored him because they felt no need for him. So then God allowed things to happen to them, mostly in the form of tribes, nations, if you will, we would consider them tribes in terms of numbers, attacking them, oppressing them. And the scriptures make it very clear that God made that happen. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that, wow, how could that happen when God's protecting them? No, God's saying through the prophets, have I got your attention yet? Because I sent them, you know, and sure enough, 
it got people's attention. Usually took a while. Usually took them getting really, really beaten up. And then they turned to God. Now their focus is on God. Now their lives change because they're trying to live the way God has already told them to live. The only thing that God does is withdraw that foreign army. The rest of what changes is because they're now doing what they've always known to do, or at least always been told to do. And then it happens again, because now everything's going well. So I don't need to pay attention to God, because things are cool, things are smooth. Over and over and over. We see the same pattern begun in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't cover a thousand years like the Old Testament, but um, we see it beginning, and most of us can see it in our own lives. When we're willing to put energy into something, when we have to, we have a tendency to turn to God for help. Maybe that's the point. Now, that's totally speculation. I have no uh, scripture that says this is exactly why God set it up that way. But I know in my life and pretty much everyone else's I've ever interacted with, that holds true. So I have a, a feeling that the reason we need to do this is because in doing this, we draw closer to God. Now, I've also shared with many of you a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. And uh, when, we, when we bridge into Bible study, which is necessary in order to understand the Bible, um, a lot of this would be eliminated if we would simply learn Biblical Hebrew and Kiyane Greek. And here we are in Southern California. I've lived in places where you had to drive 150, 200 miles to get to some place that would teach you this. And here we are. I could give you a dozen places off the top of my head within a 30-mile radius. And I'm quite certain there's far more than those I'm just not aware of. We could do it. But we don't. I wonder why that is. You know, we've talked about this. We talked about that in the survey class. If you become a, a Muslim today, it's the first thing you're going to do is learn Arabic. And if you're not committed enough to do that, you're not going to become a Muslim. If you become an Orthodox Jew, first thing you're going to do is learn Hebrew. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not going to become an Orthodox Jew. Our expectations are kind of low. But we don't have to live down to them. We can have our own bar. I find joy in doing this in the study. I really do. For myself, for others. But I've also found clarity and direction in life. Again, for myself and for others. That I haven't found anywhere else. And I've looked. So, I think there's a good reason to put that energy in. All right. Other questions? Yes, sir. Um, I'm not sure to phrase it as a question, but uh, if there's a method or a system or a series of questions to ask when you come across a difficult text okay. and, you, and you've heard person A translate, you know, teaches on it this way, and then you hear another expert who teaches another way, and it, as, a, as a layman studier, you're like, 
these guys have been studying this for years, but they're diametrically opposed. Yeah. And so if there was... Which will happen on virtually every text. Because yeah. you give me anything, and I can tell you someone who believes something weird about it. Um, real quick, a couple things. The, the answer, first of all, is that's pretty much the entire point of this three-week series. Uh, so yes, there's a process, and in the third session, um, I will give you a handout that it basically is, is do this, do this, do this, do this. You know, it's incorporating these principles that I'm going to give you in a minute. But it's, all right, now let's practice going through these. But that said, why is that what you just said? Why is it that people who have devoted their lives to study can come up with such radically different ideas and opinions? And I have noticed a couple of things. Number one, almost never do they disagree on what the Bible means, what it says. Okay? That's pretty much objective. So the disagreement is on now what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Number two, most humans have an inherent desire to fill in the gaps. Right? So in, uh, in academia, there are different types of theology in a typical seminary uh, course of study, you're going to be exposed to all of them, but you're going to zero in on one. So there is what most of us would assume, biblical theology. Believe it or not, uh, many seminaries will give you like a one, two or three unit class, one term, and that's it. Because that's not their focus. There is historic theology. There is contemporary theology. Um, there is uh, systematic theology. Systematic theology is the one that tends to unite all the others, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a systematic study of certain categories of theology or religion, if I can use that term. Um, and pretty much anybody that, that studies at that level is going to study the subjects. I've studied them. I don't know anybody that's been to a Bible college or seminary that hasn't. Systematic theology may or may not focus on the word. In an evangelical or a, or a more biblically conservative school, they certainly will start there. But then they say, now, this is what the word tells us, but we've got these questions. And they spend an amazing amount of time focusing over here on the questions the word does not answer for us. Biblical theology says, this is what God has given us. It starts with an assumption, by the way, that the Holy Spirit has inspired this and that he knew what he was doing. And I know that sounds a little sarcastic, but think about it. When God gave us what he's given us in Scripture, was it potluck? Was it just, well, that's there, I'll go ahead and make sure that's good and they get that. Or does God actually know what he's doing when he does that? Paul says that scripture has everything we need for teaching, for correcting teaching, for correcting behavior, for training in righteousness, so that all of us will be fully equipped for everything God wants us to do. And that's just a very, very small, loose translation of 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. It's almost literal. I took some liberties with 17. But I think you'll find the meaning is there still. So I spent 
about half of my adult life trying to go over and doing what most others would do, getting sucked in to those. And then it dawned on me, I haven't mastered scripture, <laughs> right? Um, we talk about scripture all the time, by the way. Almost never do I pull this out because I use the electronic versions. But what's in here, God has given us. I believe this. I have literally based my life on this. There is so much in here that I have not understood yet, simply because I haven't gotten to it. I'm far more of a New Testament focus than Old Testament. I'll admit that. So a lot of the Old Testament I need to zero in more on if I'm going to fully understand it, right? And there's certainly a lot of this that I have not mastered in terms of changing it from what I know to how I live. Can you all relate to that one? There's a big difference between knowing it and doing it. Why would I spend my time on all these things that God does not even think are important enough to address when I've got all these other things that both he and I know are that important and I haven't gotten those worked out in my life yet. So I take an approach that is a, a rather hardcore biblical theology approach that most academics, and these are the ones that are writing those books because someone's paying them to do that, uh, and they don't take that. In fact, it's very hard to take that and make a living at it. If you want to be an academia, I mean, I was actually discouraged from going that route because I intended to have a family. That was literally what one of my profs said. So, okay. But if I start playing with all this other stuff that God didn't tell us, but maybe someone's interested in, maybe I get people interested. Maybe they, they, they want to delve into that stuff, and maybe they'll buy my books. So maybe I can make a living at that. It's a very human thing. It's a very real thing. And finally, no human being is without bias. We're going to address that several times in the principles. That means every one of you has already decided what a lot of scripture says before you've ever read it. Okay? And me too. Now, I've spent a lot of years intentionally bumping into people who will challenge my bias and shine light on it so I can go, oh, good night. I really do have that. But that doesn't mean I've uncovered them all. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the ones that we've figured out. I'll guarantee you that there's others there. So if I write one of those books, if, I'm, if I have integrity, what I say about what the Bible says is going to be pretty clear. But when I say, now, what do we do with that? Guess where that goes? That goes to my bias. And unless I've got someone very intentionally checking that for me, it's inevitable. The good news is we can do that. I've studied uh, formally and informally with pretty much every label of Christian you can think of. All sorts of independents such as myself, uh, right wing all the way to non-instrument Church of Christ or the um, Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, which is a Lutheran. For those of you who know about Church of Christ, they make the Church of Christ, the non-instrument Church of Christ, look liberal, which is really hard to do, all the way to uh, liberal Roman Catholic. I've had the, the, the opportunity and the privilege to do that. And in every one of those situations, 
not all of them have been able to teach me about scripture because many of them, quite frankly, have never studied it. But they've all taught me about my biases. As we get into the conversations, as we get into, they, they challenge me on things that I don't see that I'm assuming. So it can be a good thing to do. You gotta be careful and make sure where you are to start with. It is not a place to start, but it is something that can be useful. All right, now for the rest of this, that's the rest of the class, okay? Yes, sir. I'm just curious, wouldn't that be kind of dangerous filling in the gaps? Because then you're kind of adding to the Bible. I think it's extraordinarily dangerous, which is why I tell people don't do that. Okay. So like I said, I'm kind of a hardcore biblical theology person, and I would be perfectly happy for seminaries to totally drop uh, particularly systematic theology as a discipline. That will not happen. Um, at least that has not happened. In fact, I've, I've actually sent people to seminaries from different church, churches I've served, uh, warned them about this, only to see them over the years be kind of co-opted into that, and they're not serving anywhere. They're into the academic treadmill. Just, they talk about stuff a lot. Yeah, I think it's horribly dangerous. Any other? Go ahead. Uh, going back to what you said about the, the uh, two languages, Greek and Hebrew, would that be current versions? Or no, like ancient, Greek, ancient Hebrew. Um, and ancient Hebrew is pretty much what the Old Testament, the problem with the Old Testament is it was written over anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 years. We don't have the dates on the oldest part. So we're speculating. And language changes extraordinarily in that period of time. So different books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew is different. And you can kind of tell the older ones because it's an, an older version of Hebrew, if you will. The newest are actually written in what's called Aramaic, which for want of a better way of saying it would be American versus Elizabethan English. Elizabethan would be Shakespeare, King James, American is us. So clear link, you can see the connection of a lot of words that are the same. A lot of words aren't, a lot of the grammar's not. And if you just sit down and read through the King James, I guarantee you, if you haven't studied some of their grammar, uh, there's places you're just going to go, what? Because it's 500-year-old language. And that's the difference between Aramaic and classic Hebrew. Um, so really, you've got to study Hebrew in general, and then you're going to get some of the Aramaic thrown in. And that's why it takes usually uh, two or three years to become uh, proficient enough to read the Bible. Okay, You'll be able to sound words out within a month if you work hard. Uh, you'll also lose it in a month, by the way, if that's all you do, because that's what I did. Uh, I actually took a three-semester hour course in Hebrew. That was it. The extent of my Hebrew. And within a year, it was gone. I remember being in the class. <laughs> that doesn't help much. On the other hand, I have a, a minor in New Testament Greek, also known as Kine or Koine Greek. The reason you'll hear the, the different pronunciations, some of you have been through this, is 
uh, about 500 years ago, there was a guy who was an extraordinary scholar, but was also a bit mischievous. And um, he liked making fun of people, particularly other scholars. And um, there was this giant debate on how New Testament Greek was pronounced. Say, now this is uh, roughly 1500. Everybody knew how Greek was pronounced then. We can fly to Greece and listen to it. So we know how it's pronounced now. But again, 2000 years, 1500 years then, that's a big difference. So he wrote a treatise on uh, claiming that he had discovered the key to pronunciation of New Testament or Kine common Greek. It was the, the Greek of the street that the Bible's written in. And everybody, the entire academic world just jumped all over it and bought it hook, line, and sinker. A year later, he published a follow-up. I made it all up just to see what you would do. <laughs> Today, the debate still rages. Which time was he lying? The first one or the second one? But 90% of seminaries and Bible colleges use his pronunciation method. It's just kind of a common denominator. When I went to Bible college, there was a movement that my prof was part of that said, we know that wasn't it. He said it wasn't it. And in fact, of course we don't know how someone pronounced a language 2,000 years ago. We have no recordings. We have nobody who wrote, uh, here's a pronunciation guide, and we wouldn't understand it if they did, because it would be using words from 2,000 years ago. So why not just learn to pronounce the, the Greek or the Bible with modern pronunciation. So when I pronounce the words, that's how a Greek in Greece would say it today. Granted, my accent's probably horrible, but other than that. Um, and so if you talk to Edmund, who just got out, well, he's finishing his master's at um, Talbot Seminary, um, which teaches Erasmian Greek, which is that pronunciation, um, you know, half the time we're going to say the words very differently. You, we're both wrong. <laughs> I mean, the one thing you pretty well guarantee is the way Greeks pronounce Greek today is not how they did 2,000 years ago. It's almost impossible. So those two, um, you can learn enough Greek in a year of intense study. And it, it, I mean, Spudazzo, um, to if you keep practicing it, to be able to read uh, the New Testament and pick up on a lot. I don't assume I still look at translation notes to make sure that the tenses that I'm seeing are really what's there, because it was 40 years ago for me. But when I was in Bible college, it's difficult enough for some people that the four-year program, they would take four years minus the Greek, and then stay a fifth year and do nothing but Greek the fifth year. Because they were watching everybody else, you know, have nervous breakdowns almost from studying it. And Hebrew is harder. Because Greek is so, our language is so rooted in Greek that we'll see a lot of similarities. Uh, believe it or not, we are rooted in Hebrew as well. So, quick demonstration, we'll move from that. Um, ABC, right? You're all aware of ABC, okay? It's not the first language for some of you. I don't know what your alphabet would be. But English, ABC. Greek, alpha, beta, gamma. 
See the similarity? Now the gamma, the, the Greeks didn't have what we would call a C. They had the sound from other letters. So the third letter is a gamma, which usually we would bring in as a G. But alpha, beta, gamma, A, B, C. Hebrew, alet, bet, gimel. Hear the similarity? So even though it was an Asian language, the influence of it on the Middle East and then the Middle East influence on European uh, was extraordinary. And the more that you can spot that, the easier it is to read it and to understand those words. But So if you're a linguist, if you pick that up, eh, it won't be that hard for you. If you're like me, yeah, good luck with that. Which is why I've never gone back and done Hebrew again. Because I would pretty much have to drop everything and just do that. Any other questions for this class, what you want to see covered? All right. This is not a handout. This is a pass around. Just so you know. This is a handout. And this is basically the handout and the textbook for this class. Would that they were all this easy. Let's start from this side. One of the things I learned very early, by the way, is um, hopefully you're studying and reading and, and all of this. If you're married with your spouse, this is a very good thing. Uh, and it will increase your understanding and your retention. Um, there's a temptation to do a division of labor when you do that. Okay, you do this and I'll do this. Don't do that. Because what you're going to find is neither of you is really going to understand what you're doing and both of you are going to get frustrated and give up. So you, you really don't want to go there. Um, if you're studying it together, that's fantastic. But both of you study. Okay. Uh, you will notice there's no name on this. I'm the one that put the handout together. Um, the, the principles are collected from, um, at the, first, the, the time I first put this together, and I've, re, uh, I've revised it, well, according to all the versions I found when I, when I started preparing for this class, um, at least four times. Um, but there's nothing in here, well, very little in here that's original with me. So I didn't put my name on it. I'm not putting someone else's on it because it's not original with anybody else either. Uh, almost any book on hermeneutics will tell you these things. Now, I said the magic word. What we're dealing with today, and for the next two weeks, is uh, the science of hermeneutics, which is not biblical interpretation or understanding. That is how you'll see it in Bible college seminary uh, catalogs. Uh, that's a bit self-centered. It is literary interpretation or understanding. Because every principle that we're going to talk about um, really applies to any literature. Now, obviously, we treat the Bible a little bit differently because we're going to talk about assumptions. We've well, got to do that with any literature. I work on the assumption 
that the Bible is inspired. And that leads me to understand certain things in certain ways. I do not assume, in fact, I deny, that anything else is inspired. I believe this is it. See? Which leads me to uh, approach that literature differently than I'm going to approach this. But not in understanding what it means. Does that make sense? So grammar is grammar. Figures of speech are figures of speech. Context is context. These are all things that almost everything I'm going to share with you should be ringing bells all over the place because you've already understood it if you can read. But what we do is we think this is holy. Not what it contains. This. I've been places where that will get me thrown out, literally, because it's seen as, as sacrilegious. And if you ever go to the hill country or the mountain country of Thailand, do not take one of these into a restroom. You are putting yourself in danger. Learn that one the hard way. Um, when we first built that worship center over there, we even had little shelves. We took them out because people keep breaking them. But we had little shelves for the men in front of the urinals that you put your Bibles on. We assumed you're bringing them in. We have counters. People put their Bibles on. You know. Not in Thailand. Why? Because they think that the binding, the printing, that is somehow holy. It is not. It is paper. A little bit of leather. Some chemicals for the ink. Is it? Now what it contains, yeah, that's different. Hermeneutics comes from Hermes. You guys remember Hermes? Hermes was the Greek uh, interpreter god. He was the god who uh, flew around with Zeus and uh, then also delivered messages. Okay. And we're talking Greek, by the way, so the Romans had a different name for him. That's not the same. Um, Romans stole the pantheon from the Greeks and gave them their own names. Uh, kind of funny when you think about it. There's a story in the book of Acts with Barnabas and Saul. I believe he was Saul, going by Saul still, or at least recorded as Saul in that uh, passage. And they went, to a, uh, they went to a town in Turkey. It was obviously a Gentile town. And one of the first things they did is encounter a situation where a young man needed to be healed. And in the name of Jesus, Paul healed him. Miracles were extraordinarily rare, even then. And they were done, in essence, to say, God says this power is from him. He gives it to him. Listen to him. One of the major words for miracles, simeon, which means a sign. There was a sign point, signpost saying, this guy's talking for me. Listen to him. Well, that worked. Everybody gathered around and they built an altar to Paul, Saul, to Zeus. Because they assumed he was Zeus. Because, I mean, he healed the guy, right? I'm sorry, to Barnabas. I've got to get my story right. Now, Barnabas, if you know anything about Paul, Barnabas wasn't the talkative one. Paul was like Peter. 
You know, he was the dominant. He was the one that was going to, if something was going to be said, it was going to be him saying it. They saw him as Hermes and Barnabas as Zeus because their tradition was Zeus, being so far above humanity, would not deign to speak with humans normally, but spoke instead through his interpreter. So the guy doing all the talking couldn't have been Zeus. He had to be just the interpreter. And Barnabas had to be Zeus. Paul was Hermes. Okay. The interpreter. Get it? So the science of interpretation, hermeneutics. Okay? All right, you can go impress people with that. Don't know what good it's going to do, but I promised some of you that I would throw that in there. Here's some rules, and I, I like this word rules. I, I'm the one that made the handout. They are rules. If you do not use these rules, you will not understand scripture appropriately, in my humble opinion. There is a group of people, there are actually many different groups with different understandings. One in, in particular, fairly strong around here, who traditionally believe this, everything in this, what you just got, is nonsense. Don't worry about it. Because God is going to tell you whatever it means to you. And if he wants it to mean something to you, it could be the dictionary. And he's going to get that message through to you because God's good at that. Now, I don't argue that God could do that. I argue that he is doing that. Okay. Anybody know, by the way, the group? I'm not trying to put them down. This is a historic fact. Uh, the group that teaches that. Well, it's not Vineyard. Vineyard would actually agree with pretty much everything I teach. Um, I'll give you a hint. They refer to the process of God showing you what it means without benefit of needing to understand words or grammar or any of that stuff as the inner light that he puts in you. Does that trip it for you? Nobody? This is what's amazing to me because... This group is very dominant in this area. But the churches that are from this denomination don't teach that. Most of them would not argue with anything I'm going to teach you. But historically, even today, in fact, it is still the, the uh, formal teaching of the denomination. God so, reveals himself through the inner light. Pentecostal? Nope. Lutheran? Nope. Friends? The Society of Friends. And it was reaction to a cold and sterile academia that studied this not out of scripture but never lived it. And so what they were wanting to do is, no, it's got to be all about living it. And they don't, so whatever they're doing has to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Unless we think that that's really silly, it's really exactly what the people who came to the Lord when I did, by and large. The Jesus movement is exactly what we did. We looked at all of the mainline churches and said, look at how they're living. They can't be with the Lord, obviously. So the way they understand must be wrong. God's going to tell us. He's going to speak through it, whatever. Hence, Bible study meant, read that. What does that mean to you? Nothing I'm sharing with you has anything to do with what that means to you. Because quite frankly, you and I are irrelevant. 
this is God's word to humanity, it doesn't mean something different to me or you. But there are still many people today who do not believe that. And they would throw all of this out. You're going to have to make up your own mind. But let's go ahead and start with these and we'll go eh, we'll go a fair amount actually tonight. Number one, approach the Bible with an open mind. Your goal being to understand what it says. That sounds pretty obvious and reasonable, right? But then there's that bias thing. So subpoint one, admit to your bias. Um, biases. What kind of biases might we have? Um, I can't tell you. We, we just talked. Um, no, it wasn't in here. It was in here. We just talked uh, two weeks ago about the revelation of John, the apocalypse. I presented to you an understanding that has been the understanding of the vast majority of Christians across the world for the vast majority of the time the church has existed. But the polar opposite is what's believed by almost all American Christians. Whether they've ever read the text or not. That's called a bias. Where do we get it? We were told that. A bias can be as simple as who was at the manger? Well, let's see. I've got a manger scene. Who's in the manger scene? Mary. Mary. Mary's. That one's, by the way, incontrovertible. <laughs> she was there. All right? Who else? Joseph. Joseph. Very strong evidence for that one. Jesus. Jesus, yes. That, the whole Christmas thing rides on that. Who else? Shepherds. Shepherds. And they did show up according to Scripture. Who else? The wise men. The wise men, known as Three Kings. Uh, Three Kings is a, um, it, it's an old translation from the uh, King James. The word is magi. We get magician from it. And magician wouldn't be a bad translation. Wise men, sages, astrologers. Yeah, that makes us feel creepy. But that was their version of an astrologer. They showed up at least a month later. And in fact, when it says in the text that they came, it says, and when they came to the house where they were staying. It even says it right there. But no, we've seen the manger scenes, right? We've sung the songs. Yeah. <laughs> we think about Jesus a certain way. What color was his hair? Come on, you've seen the pictures. He was, of course, he was Nordic. <laughs> Now, how in the world did a Nordic come from the Jewish line? It's a miracle. It is. <laughs> uh, hey, it was a virgin birth. It could have happened. Who knows? Not likely. He was probably the, the stereotype of a Jewish person, meaning olive skin. I've never gotten olive skin. I've seen olive, and I've never seen a person whose skin was actually olive. That green. But yeah, darkened Mediterranean type of skin. Uh, almost certainly dark hair. There were some redheads. There was that genetics in um, the nation of Israel. So maybe, but yeah, he probably would have been called Jesus the Red. So odds are really good, dark, curly, even kinky hair. Flowing, by the way, because their version of, uh, of haircuts and wasn't quite the same as ours. Um, definitely the long things along the edge. 
what we would equate with the Hasidim today, the ultra-Orthodox. It's what Jews looked like then, you know. And by the way, he wasn't this slight... I've seen pictures that make him look like I did when I got out of the hospital. And he's, he's got this crooked staff, and you think he's leaning on it because he's going to fall over. Not because he's the shepherd. That's the point, by the way. The shepherd, you know. Um, Jesus was probably not a carpenter. The word is builder. And there was a lot more mud than there was wood where he lived. So guess what? He probably built the most. Yeah. How many really frail bricklayers have you ever met? These guys are beefy. And the odds are pretty good Jesus was too. Because he spent the first 30 years of his life doing that. That was his trade. Even if he was a carpenter, they didn't have power saws. Everything they did was by hand. So here's a guy who was, you know. Now our bias comes because we've seen the pictures. You mean you mean Tommy didn't look like Max von Sydow? Max who? Von Sydow. You know the greatest story ever told. You know, blue eyes. You know. Swedish. Oh, oh, okay. I now I do remember who that is. Um, again, miracle can happen. Okay, all right. Just want to check. Oh no, it wasn't there. But the odds are pretty slim. See, now that's the obvious stuff. We also have theological things, and it has to do with. Generally, like, what church did we grow up in? What did they say a lot? Um, I had somebody ask me Sunday morning, have you ever heard of a group of people who believe that you're saved if God decided you're saved in advance, and that's it? <laughs> now, you're, you're all laughing because you're all coming from different places. Some of you are laughing because who in the world would believe that, and some of you are laughing because, of course. This is typical, classic Calvinist teaching, which is the root of Baptist theology, uh, all Reformed theology, Presbyterians, Congregations, whatever. Now, I've never met a true hardcore Calvinist who actually believed exactly what Calvinists taught. But for centuries, many did. And I'm sure there are some still today. Did John Calvin believe that? John Calvin, yes. It isn't a matter of people who taught what they no, thought no, he No, 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 it's Calvin. He believed very much, because it comes out of the sovereignty of God. And an inability to, to be able to, to fit together God's sovereignty and free will. So they basically deny free will. So anybody who comes from that tradition is going to have some theological bents, even if they're not all the way there, just because they grew up. And they say, well, we know this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people in my office say, well, I know this. Like, you know, we don't have to start there. And then whatever the this was, Absolutely not scriptural. The point is, we all have that. It's a human thing. We, we bring it in from our own attitudes. Okay? So we're going to study, for example, uh, Timothy's teaching, or Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy, on um, the, uh, the role of women in ministry. Those of you in the survey class remember a discussion on that. So... You know what I found? There's an amazing correlation between the people who walk into that study believing that role is very limited and have what we would consider a very conservative view of the, that passage and those who walk out of that study with that same view. It's just astounding. 
the correlation between those. And it's amazing to me how many people walk into that study who already have a more equalitarian view, who end up with an equalitarian view at the end. You see what I'm saying? We have, we have a tendency to walk out with what we came in with. That's not accidental. We have a tendency, in fact, to find people to study with who agree with us so we don't waste time with our disagreements, which means I don't have to challenge this. And that's dangerous. So I need to admit my bias from the very beginning. And the more I do that, the more I'm going to be able to look at the word and say, OK, I'm not going to be a blank slate, but as blank as I can be, what is God saying? Now, today, what issues, what issues in this area, this culture, that we look to the scripture for guidance on, might that be pretty important for? Can you think of any? Other than what I just said. Homosexuality. Yeah. So, if I go to the Bible with an assumption that homosexual behavior is, always has been, wrong, I'm going to come out with that. Equally, if I go to the scripture with an assumption based in our culture, and in our culture, tolerance, and they don't mean tolerance, they mean embrace, they're very different words. Tolerating is like the low bar of getting along. I don't like you, I don't want to be around you, but I will tolerate you. This is not what's being taught. If I go into the Bible study with that attitude, guess what I'm likely to walk out with? I'm going to somehow find a way to make the Bible tell me that homosexual behavior has always been okay. And I can give a dozen off the top of my head people whom I know who have done exactly that. Now, did you notice, by the way, that there's a bias on both sides? So if I decide today to go into a study with someone and say, let's start from scratch, let's just, let's just go to the Word and do our best to find out what does the Word say? What bias do I need to lay aside? You're on your own. Which, well, I've been here 16 years, guys. Most of you know what that is. What bias do I need to lay aside with that subject? Mm -hmm. Seriously? That is sin. Yeah. By the way, you've never heard me say being homosexual is sin. Because I don't know that I believe that is a reality. See, we talk about it as a state of being. That's very, very new. That's like 50, 60, 70 years old. Before that, it was all about behavior. And the Bible talks about behavior, not orientation. What so, are the words that are used that says that homosexuality, what are the words that are used to describe that? And what is the translation of those words? Well, there's. It's, I'm afraid we can't do that in this short thing. I'd be glad to sit down with you and do that. Um, there are New Testament passages that refer specifically to um, the, the person in a sex act. 
uh, and the role that he is fulfilling in that sex act, condemning it. Uh, then there's broader, like in Deuteronomy, saying anyone who lies with, which was a word for sex, who has sex with uh, a man who has sex with another man is committing sin. And I mean, it was in the law, so that's wrong, and here's the penalty. So it goes from, from both ends of it. Um, now, obviously, what I'm trying to say to you is, I've, I've looked at this before. So I operate based on what I've already studied. Okay? I've already come to conclusions. But I can still go to the Word and say, okay, I'm going to lay those aside if I'm studying with someone else, particularly someone who does not accept those conclusions to start with, and say, let's just find out what it says and agree on what it says. And we can figure out what to do about it. And when we both do that, we're going to come out with the same conclusions. Because the Bible says what it says, and it's very clear. There really isn't any interpretation. And I know there's a movement uh, within the homosexual rights movement that tries to teach that that exists, that it's really a matter of interpretation, and it's a lie. And I'm willing to use the word lie, because the people who are propagating it know better. See, there's one thing if you're misinformed. There's another one you know better, and you're out there teaching something anyway. Now, why did I bring that up? Because that's something that's dividing this country. It divides churches, and we cannot sit back and go, we're just not going to talk about it. We have to be willing to teach God's word. People are making decisions, and yes, I believe it is a decision. We're making decisions on how we relate to it. We're making decisions on how we raise our kids. We need to know what God says. Okay? Now, by the way, we, we also have biases in terms of what we do with that. So I've said this, I said this 16 years ago. It was my first year here. And I, I actually remember very clearly looks on people's faces when I said it. I've said it so many times since then, it's probably blah, whatever. But why do you suppose so many people in the homosexual community believe Christians hate them? Because so many Christians hate them. <clears throat> or at least so many people calling themselves Christians yes. hate them. I'm not sure I'm willing to go along with that they are actually all are. Those who identify themselves as yeah. Christians so yeah. hate them. So, but we're all sinners at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. So one sin is a sin is a sin. Absolutely, although that's a bias. I'm just asking. Well, I happen to believe that, and I've taught that many times here. But, yeah, I mean, that's an, another valid question to go to the Scripture. Is there a difference in God's eyes between sins? Well, certainly a difference in terms of uh, impact. So Jesus said, uh, killing you is probably wrong. Yes, no problem. Um, but then he said, but I'm telling you, if you're even angry at him, then you kill him in your, in your heart. So in terms of its impact on me, they both are very, very destructive. I have sinned. But I'm pretty sure you prefer the one where I don't do anything with a gun. Right? Because there's a big difference between me wanting to shoot you and me shooting you. Is that man's eyes? Or is that well, it's man's eyes, and it's in, in the... Uh, carrying out and the living out of the consequences. So, how is it sin? It's sin in my heart. It's sin in 
I'm going to be judged for that sin, according to Jesus. But I haven't killed anybody yet. And I'm quite certain his kids, wife, would prefer to keep it that way. See what I mean? So we, we mix those things up sometimes, and that's why we say, oh, of course there's a difference. No. Jesus was talking about here. How do I know that? We'll get to that down the list. Okay? But isn't that whole issue, like, I know you said all sins are the same, but, I mean, isn't it a little more up on the seriousness, I guess, of it? Because didn't God burn, like, an entire city to the ground because of that? going on in the city? Well, number one, God burned the city to the ground according to scriptures so that we would see the example and learn from it. Okay. Um, it wasn't because of that? Well, it was certainly because of that sin. But there were other cities doing similar things that he didn't burn to the ground. Oh, okay. So why that one? Well, because it was recorded so that we would learn from it. Okay. And then the scripture actually says that. But were the sins that they were committing worse than other sins? Well, it depends on what you mean. In terms of, of my own soul and my judgment, am I going to hell? No, absolutely not. I lied. I've sinned. What happens to people who sin? According to Scripture. They confess and repent. You are not well, I, no, 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 no. What happens to people who sin? They, they, they are judged. They have the penalty of sin. See? All the stuff you're saying is the rescue, which of course I believe in it and I'm grateful for it, but that's not automatic because I as the sinner have to accept the rescue, see. Now, that's the exact same um, um, penalty as the guy who commits murder. And to put it in other terms, the young couple over here who are in love, amazing how many of them are in love, um, and who commit pornia. You may not know what the word means, but it's, it can't be good if it's got porn in it, right? And that's exactly the point. It's where porn comes from. It's all sexual sin. Any sex outside of marriage. It's an umbrella term. We would refer to it as premarital sex. All right? They've sinned, according to Scripture. Okay? I'm just saying it. If you want documentation come to my office. Now, on the other end of this, we've got this other issue that, that has become a flash issue in our society where two guys commit sex acts together. Okay? Guess what? It's still pornea. The judgment for those two is exactly the same. Exactly the same. Here's where bias comes in. This may be what you were starting off with. We don't treat those people and those people the same. We don't. I say we meaning the church as a whole. Certainly the country. Okay? So if, if we're going to understand scripture, we've got to be willing to see ourselves. And in almost every circumstance, we're going to see a bias. We're going to have to set it aside. What does the word actually say? And then we can act on that. Did you say something? Oh, no, I was just... Okay. All right. We need to screen the bias by admitting to other possibilities, which is what I basically just said. Um, that other possibility, by the way, does not have to be, I'm here, you're here, so I have to admit you're, you're, maybe you're right. Because in all likelihood, I'm going to look at you and go, that's, that's ridiculous. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It can't be. Because that's what we do. What I've got to be willing to do is simply be over here and say, 
Maybe there's something I don't know about. Is it entirely possible that there's something in all of God's creation that I don't know about? How many vote yes? Yeah, see? See, when you put it that way, it's a little easier to do this than when you say, no, can you admit he might be right? No, he's not right. I mean, we're already into the arguments, so people are going to do that. Okay. Can you admit you may not be right? Because if I can at least do that, then I'm going to approach Scripture honestly. And everything else that we're talking about is meaningless if I don't do that. If I simply start with, it's going to say this, I'm going to find a way to make it say that. And you can come up with any that you want. And I've read some really unbelievably strange things that, that people come up with, but Hey, we're human and we're strange. We can do it. All right. The third point there is then we need to interpret our personal experience in the light of Scripture. This is, this is one of the sources of our biases. Now, personal experience might be I just grew up this way. This is just who we are. This is, what, yeah, we, this is who I am. Okay, wonderful. This is who you are. You're a sinner. God asks you to repent. So you don't get to go to God saying, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. You're not going to like the way that works out. Because, and, and, and here's the reason. I had a guy once tell me, you're judging me on how God made me. And that's an interesting statement. Now, by the way, there's a lot of discussion that had pre preceded that. And it was where I was calling him on some behavior. And I said, well, number one, I'm not judging you. I'm simply acknowledging your behavior. And the scripture says it's wrong. And number two, you can't put that on God. He did not make you doing that. That's something you added to the mix. Right? So God didn't make me sin. I came up with a sin. Maybe this is one of the reasons why all of our sins are so unique to us. We come up with our own concoctions. I can't blame God for that. And that means I can repent. So I can repent of imposing my experiences onto God. I came to more of the Jesus movement, and in the Jesus movement, it was all about experience. Well, I feel this. Well, I had this. And there's an amazing number of really horrible things that were taught because of that, you know? So, um, yeah, I, man, when you put that record on, I saw something come out of it. Now, maybe they saw something. I don't know. There's all sorts of ways to account for someone seeing something. And they don't all have to do with all of the chemicals that we were ingesting as we were doing that. But I can't say, I saw this. Therefore, the Bible must mean this. It must be consistent with what I saw. Right? I heard a loud voice. Therefore, God does speak in voices, and God does speak to me. Well, number one, there's, a, again, a lot of different reasons why someone can think they heard a loud voice and even reasons why they actually heard one, whether it was there or not. There's all sorts of explanations, right? So there's, there's lots of things that we might experience and then say, so the Bible has to. And no, we have to back off of that. Our experience is warped by our biases already. 
and our experience may or may not be connected to reality. Does that make sense? Okay. All of that's one thing. We need to approach the Bible with an open mind to say, God, what are you saying to us? And if we do that, he honors it. Because he's, he's communicating with us. He wants to do that. Okay, number two, we need to define our assumptions regarding the text itself. This is where the assumptions we make about the Bible are going to be different than the assumptions we make about most other literature. Okay? So, for example, biblical authority. Now, all of this is going to come to, um, well, let me go through these because it's going to come to one big thing. Biblical authority, consistency of truth. You understand what I mean by consistency of truth? If it's true, it's true. Now, there is a, uh, a philosophy of relativism. Your truth may not be the same as my truth. Well, if by that you mean your experience is different and what works for you may be different than what works for me, because um, how many of you eat um, these things with capsaicin? Um, jalapenos, you know. See? Now, truth is truth. Those things are horrible. <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. <clears throat> See what I'm saying? Obviously, it's, it's, an, it's a stupid and obvious illustration. But it's a way that many people will go to to try to avoid conflict. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying let's go have conflict and just you know, lower your head and charge like a rhino. What I'm saying is, truth is, if it's truth, it's true, period. It is objective. Yes, there is objective truth. Now, believe it or not, there's a large number, and I suspect it's up to half the people on the planet who do not believe that. So if we're going to study with someone else, we got to, do you buy that or not? Because I believe in absolute truth. And therefore, if it's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. If it's true in Matthew, it's true in Corinthians. So how exactly then do you explain Paul chewing people out for not judging the, the people in the church that they're with when Jesus said, don't judge? And by the way, it's the same word. I have an assumption that I start with. Very consciously, I'm willing to put it out there. I assume there is no conflict there. Therefore, I have to look for an explanation of that. Now, if I assume that there can be conflict, the explanation is Paul's an idiot. Because I'm not going to say that about Jesus. Right? So they're contradicting each other, it seems to be. So I'm going to say Paul's an idiot, he's wrong. Jesus has to be right because he's Jesus. So it matters if I make that assumption or not. Uh, progressive revelation. This is simply a teaching that God did not reveal himself all at once. So if you look at what Abraham understood about God um, compared to what um, Paul understood about God, it was very little. Because get, God gives us, over history, a lot more about himself. Uh, Abraham had no concept of the cross and the resurrection. No idea. Okay. David actually talked about it some. As a prophet, a great example of what Peter meant when he said, here's these people who, who wanted to understand it and couldn't. But David didn't know what that meant. 
You and I know. Why? Because God has revealed that to us over time. And there's a reason for that to happen. But what that means then is if I'm reading Genesis, I don't get to read Genesis with all of the assumptions that come from studying the New Testament and think that's mu that must be what the writer of Genesis meant. The, the classic is um, in the beginning, um, God said, let us, you all remember that? Let us uh, create the world. Let us, whatever he said. Let us being the point. So there's a large number of people who will tell you that is incontrovertible uh, proof of the Trinity. That has absolutely nothing to do with the Trinity. Okay. Now the first clue is no one had any concept of the Trinity. No one knew. Not the people who were writing that and not the people who were understanding it. Did the Holy Spirit of course the Holy Spirit understood. But there's nowhere in Scripture where the Holy Spirit tells things and says, I know something you don't know. That's not what Scripture's about. It's about revealing things to us. And the second, by the way, is what it does mean and did mean is known to us, which is one of the principles we're going to get to next week. So we know why there's a plural there. And when we get to that, as an example, every one of you is going to go, oh, yeah. Because you've heard it a hundred times. But we read that, and we forget, and we read into the Old Testament what we know from the New Testament. So we've got to be careful with that. Is that making sense? Because I'm seeing puzzled looks. Okay. We'll move on, think about it, bring it up next week if we need to. The role of the Holy Spirit in understanding the text. Um, when I came to the Lord, I was told the Holy Spirit will tell you what it means. Yeah, you want to be real careful about that one. Um, I had a professor my freshman year of college named Dallas Meserve, and Dallas claimed credit, and that's how he said it, for getting rid of over half the freshman class the first quarter of every year. Um, I thought it was a wonderful thing, because the recruiters are all going out just trying to build up you know, the, the student body, and everybody ought to take at least a year of Bible college if you're a Christian, and Dallas, a lifelong minister and Bible scholar says, no, this is a place we train leaders. This is not summer camp. And so he, he made it his mission to get rid of the summer campers, and he, he did a great job of it. So one of the first things he would do is bring all of us together because of the impact of the Jesus movement and, frankly, our horrible theology. And um, he would say, how many of you believe the Holy Spirit will tell you what Scripture means? And, you know, half of us raise our hand. Me too. Yep, I'm there. Okay. And then he would pose a question. And it was a, a very simple question, but one that he knew there was disagreement about with regard to Scripture. So, does this mean this, or does this mean this? Show of hands. How many think this is, it means this? Well, of course, you know, a lot of us raised our hands. Now, do you see the problem that's about to unfold? <laughs> because a whole bunch of the people that raise their hands on the next option also raise their hands with me that the Holy Spirit was telling us what it meant. So Dallas would simply sit back and say, which group of you is the Holy Spirit lying to? <laughs> Ouch. The Bible does not tell me the Holy Spirit will tell me what it means. 
Quite the opposite. It says study it. See? Now, by the way, you will find some places that talk about leading you into all truth. Um, good, good luck finding one of those that's not about one of the apostles. The apostles were given special understanding, special knowledge that we do not have, explicitly so that they could pass it on to us in the form of scripture. So, of course, they had things that we don't have. We've got to be very careful about assuming that because they were given that promise, that that applies to me. Because it doesn't. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. The purpose of the Bible is to change our lives, not to add to knowledge. Um, this is a pretty important one because there's this pendulum that goes on through the, the decades um, that studying the Bible is extraordinarily important, but then people start studying the Bible and, and we look at them and nothing changes in their lives. And then it causes a shift. And right now, we're kind of over here in the American church where over half the ministers being hired have absolutely no biblical training whatsoever. I mean, I happen to be looking right now at job descriptions and ministry qualifications. It's amazing how many of them don't really care if you have that training. Why? Because they've seen this excess over here of people who are all academic but no life. The problem is, it's not the opposite of being, yeah, we do lots of stuff, but I don't have a clue what the Bible says, so I'll make it up. Because unfortunately, most of the places our, our, our roles are people who are teaching it. See? So we've got a problem here. The Bible was given to us so that we would know who God is and understand how to live. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a knowledge and there's an application. So if you've been in many classes with me or if you've done a spiritual health assessment with me, you've heard me say, there's three questions you have to answer before you can say you studied a passage or a topic. What does it say? What does it mean? Look up the meaning of words, context, all of that. So what? Because James says I'm to be a doer of the word, not just a, a hearer. So if, as a teacher, I'm just telling you, this is what it says, and then I shut up and walk away. I have just set you up to think it's great for trivia contests, but it doesn't really have much to do with their lives. And if you don't think that's real, you might want to ask yourself why it is that over half the churches in this city right now don't teach the Bible. Literally, don't teach the Bible. That's not a judgment, it's an observation. The sermons are on all sorts of things but not the Bible. And, and the reason is simple. They've rejected it for some reason. And frequently the reason is that they've seen people use it in ways it wasn't intended to be used. It's not about trivia. It's not about gaining knowledge. It's about knowing how to live. And who is this guy whom we follow? If we don't know who he is, we have a real hard time following. And then finally, the responsibility of each believer is to study, understand, and respond. Which is basically, what does it say, what does it mean, and so on. Okay? All right. Um, we did a lot of background stuff today, which is important. 
next week we're going to start with number three. And we're probably going to go through, if not the rest of this handout, the majority of it. Because that's what we're going to zero in on. Then whatever we don't finish, we'll finish the third week. I'd love to finish the whole thing this, this next week and then have the third week just for case studies, looking at specific passages that give us heartburn and how do we navigate through those with these principles. Here's what I would suggest this week. Pick a topic. Pick a subject. And then write down everything that you think about that subject. Subject that the Bible might address. Uh, this computer program over this one, probably a bad way to go. You're not going to find much there. Okay? So it could be um, honesty. It could be marriage. It could be raising your kids. It could be attitude towards work. I mean, if it's got to do with life, it's probably in there. Okay? And then write down, what do you already believe about that? And ask yourself, exactly where did you get that biblically? Now, the exercise is designed to help us see, again, we all have those biases. Okay? And if you really want to go into this, then when you do that, go ahead and start looking at whatever tools you've got, topical <coughs> Bible, concordance, whatever. Uh, be careful about Google. It can be useful, but there's a lot of garbage out there that Google will connect you with and start to look up your assumptions. You know, I believe this about marriage. Is that true? Look it up from the Bible, though, and see where the Bible actually tells you that. Because if it doesn't tell you that, by definition, that's what we're talking about. That's one of those biases. It may be accurate. That's not the point. The point is we don't want to start with that because sooner or later we're going to find ourselves committing to a stance with some subject that's important that isn't accurate. And that's how we get in trouble and people get hurt. Is that making sense? All right. Um, two minutes over. So I'm just going to go with my watch. It says it's 8.30, so we'll go there. All right. You guys have a great night, and I'll see you next week.